part of what's going to revitalize the humanities. And it's spreading quite rapidly because our, our pedagogical modes are not very successful. That's Mark Carnes, professor of history at Barnard College and the creator of Reacting to the Past, a new style of teaching in college classrooms that immerses students in the events and debates that shaped the past. This pedagogical method aims not just to help students learn about the past, but to deepen their capacity for historical, political, and cultural empathy. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. So often we hear that the humanities are in crisis. If you haven't heard that, just Google them. Any internet search will unleash an avalanche of books and articles attempting to prove or disprove, bemoan or dismiss this crisis. Often these articles have the tone of a funeral dirge. Titles such as Who Ruined the Humanities and The Death of the Humanities are, though certainly grim, pretty common. But why are the humanities in crisis? Some seem to place blame on the government and the leaders of educational institutions for placing undue emphasis on technical training, as well as for becoming slave to the profit motive and to an intensely utilitarian model of education. Others see the problem in humanities departments themselves. Scholarship has just become too specialized and too obscure, according to this reading, as well as too baldly ideological and political to be able to court students or merit significant funding. But it's funny, in all these proposed diagnoses, we rarely hear about pedagogy. How can professors teach in a manner that will inspire students, engage them in new, more profound ways, and offer them all that a humanities education is supposed to? Not just critical thinking, but narrative imagination, as well as moral and political imagination, and also empathy. Mark Carnes' teaching method, Reacting to the Past, seems to address some of these issues. In our conversation, Mark describes just what reacting to the past, or RTTP, can do for students as well as professors. He also considers how it might affect our political culture. All that and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Professor Carnes, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Joe, I'm delighted to be on with you. So you're professor of history at Barnard College, and much of your work is in American history but you're perhaps best known right now as the inventor of an innovative style of pedagogy, which has been implemented at colleges and universities across the nation. It's called Reacting to the Past, and you've written a book about it out from Harvard University Press titled Minds on Fire, How Role Immersion Games Transform College. Could you give listeners a summary of what this pedagogical technique or approach entails and what makes it different from the standard lecture format that most people would be familiar with? I'll try to give a summary. It'll be very, very hard for your listeners to understand, uh, but, but I'll give a shot at it. Reacting to the past consists of elaborate games set in the past where students take on roles informed by classic texts. Now, these games have nothing to do with computers, and that's the first thing people imagine that gaming has to be done through, uh, through internet or online sorts of things. These are in-class role-playing games, some call them simulations, but they're structured as games. So some games will be set in 
One game is set in ancient Athens after the Peloponnesian War when the Athenian Assembly has to figure out whether to continue with a democracy that lost the war. Another game would be, are set in Ming China over whether what, what interpretation of Confucianism makes the most sense in resolving political disputes over governance in the Ming era. Other games are set in uh, uh, all sorts of other historical moments in different cultures and different disciplines. So reacting is used by, I think the games last, each game lasts about anywhere from two weeks to six weeks. Uh, um, students are assigned roles, they, they research their, uh, their positions, they make arguments, the class is contentious as students fight through these very complex situations. Uh, in the process, not only do they become immersed in lots of different historical moments, but also lots of different disciplines, and uh, they, they develop the sorts of skills that we in higher education say our institutions seek to inculcate in their mission statements skills such as effective speaking, uh, writing, teamwork, leadership, critical thinking, empathy, all these things are part of the mission statements, but how are lecture classes and unstructured seminars attain them is really not that clear and reacting it's really all out on the line you see you see how it unfolds professor Carnes, could you walk us through what one game in particular might look like so say say students are playing a game on the french revolution they're assigned roles then then do they debate each day and how, how is a winner selected at the end of the course so, so the French Revolution game is set at a pivotal phase in the revolution in 1791. The game would begin, uh, students would read a 150-page game book which sets up the historical context. They'd also read Rousseau's social contract and other primary source documents that would set them in the situation. They would also be, each person would be assigned a role and their, their factions would meet some Members would be members of the National Assembly in France. Some would be leaders of the Jacobin Club, others uh, of the various conservative clubs. There's the middle of the road constitutional monarchist uh, faction head, headed up by Lafayette. And then there'd be some students who'd be assigned as the section leaders of Paris. That is, they're not in the National Assembly, but they're attending the meetings and they're making arguments uh, uh, in the Assembly, even though they're not members. So. So after the setup, then there'd be faction meetings so that each side would be able to figure out what it's doing, understand its intellectual orientation. Students would then be making arguments and advancing agendas for what they want the National Assembly to do. Jacobins would want to push the revolution forward to lead to republic. The uh, conservatives would be trying to roll back the revolution. The constitutional monarchists would try to to hold the revolution but take it no further somehow to reconcile the monarchy with the new powers of the National Assembly. The section leaders of Paris would be trying to push hard to a Rousseauian utopian vision that would get rid of elected leadership entirely to, towards a more direct democracy. So those, So the game would then be how these various elements unfold who wins the debates in the assembly, how the section leaders can succeed in destabilizing the whole system, hmm. what, what outside alliances are made with other powers. And so there will be 
three weeks of debates of votes and things moving lurching forward in some ways following the actual pattern of the French Revolution, but students can also somehow break free from history, and they often do. So the, the games are open-ended, though they're always, the, the whole rule system holds them within historical plausibility. So I should, I should disclose to listeners straight away that I've played some of these games, and I'm definitely a proponent of the pedagogical technique. The first game I played was, was the one you just described, which is the one on the French Revolution. My classmates and I, as you say, were assigned roles as, as Jacobins or defenders of the Ancien Regime or members of the hungry, angry crowd. I was a, um, a clergy member, and I'm very glad to say I was the first one to get the guillotine. I earned that. Uh, um, so we had to take on these roles, as you say, and internalize the arguments and sets of commitments associated with them and then debate. And what was significant, at least in my view, as I, as I sort of reflected on, on the game, was the fact that you know, students would use class time not to reenact or rehearse past events, as you say, but to sort of create them anew, uh, to resurrect the period and battle again over the issues that defined it. What sort of things do students learn when they do this? Uh, what, what can they learn from this kind of activity that they might not learn from attending a lecture? Uh, Joe, what, when did you play this game? This was, uh, I was a fresh or a sophomore in college, which would have been like five, six years ago. Now, how much do you remember of your other classes your sophomore year? <laughs> That's interesting. That's not, I suppose not a lot. I think I, I, I would have internalized a lot of the, or come to understand a lot of the course content of each of my classes, but I don't remember the experience of being in the course. I definitely remember the experience of being All in right. this course. Yeah. Now, now, now for, for you, the core text would have been Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, That's which right. is a, which is a, is a hugely important text in conservative thought. Um, uh, enduringly important most students who have to read this for college can't remember any of it. Mm. Do, you, do you remember Burke's arguments? So I do. I remember some pretty absurd, though funny lines about um, swords being drawn from scabbards whenever uh, anyone would challenge um, Marie Antoinette or something. I remember his, um, you know, I remember his defense of, I don't think he used this phrase, but the sort of defense of the organic development of culture. Um, uh, that's, that's, that's huge. That's, 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 that's a hugely important and difficult idea in a very difficult text. So you're saying not only do you remember this sort of exciting experience, but you remember a very difficult text from five and six years ago. And do you remember those sorts of things from the other classes? My hunch, I won't mm. put you on the spot, mm. but my hunch is that, that most of us, and I know your listeners, many of them are college graduates, uh, what they recall of their classroom experiences and of their classes, it, often the jokes of the professors, the personas, the foibles, but but the content itself itself does not stick. I mean, mm. that is that we plenty of learning research shows that much of what we learn in college just doesn't stick. Reacting thrust is, is an entirely different uh, process where instead of having information thrown at you, you inhabit an embedded structure of knowledge. That whole game is a whole cluster of rules, of materials, 
uh, of papers that you're writing based on Burke and or attacking Burke if you're on the other side, mm. where you really get into this structure of knowledge. So higher education consists of a pedagogical model, which we know doesn't work very well, namely that you have professors who have knowledge and they then assign books that have knowledge and students are then supposed to somehow receive this knowledge. This, this process of transmitting knowledge from A to B is not very successful very often. That is the truth that, 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 that makes the expense of higher education so problematic for, for our entire nation, that students uh, and families are paying a lot for higher education, but not much of it seems to stick, which is one of the strange problems that more and more students go to college, more and more a larger percentage of the nation has college degrees, more a higher proportion of Congress members have uh, college degrees, yet political discourse seems to be getting poorer and poorer. People can engage in intellectual dispute because they just don't have a capacity for it. So part of the problem, I would say, that the, the devolution of intellectual discourse is that our education isn't taking hold, that we're pushing ideas and knowledge out there and it's not taking hold. Reacting is a different pedagogical method where you where you inhabit these structures of knowledge, of texts, of ideas, of human experiences, and they become part of your life. And you've been, you've when you picked up Burke's pivotal point, right. which is that 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 political institutions, in his view, and this is a foundation of conservative thought, mm -hmm. have to grow organically rather than than through. Um, a, a template of revolution where you've got an idea of how human beings should work and you impose that upon them. Okay, you have absorbed an important text mm. and remembered it in an active way six years later. That's that's what reacting does. That's part of it. Well, you know, and that's a great point. I, I think with respect to Burke, you know, I, when I was a student entering that class, I don't think I was predisposed necessarily to like Burke's arguments Initially, I would have been more sort of on the Rousseauian, or rather even the Thomas Paine side. However, you know, as as I say, I was a clergy member, and I really had to make use of a lot of of a lot of Burke's ideas and Burke's rhetoric. And in fact, you know, I, it's interesting you point out that the arguments have stuck with me for six years. You know, I always find myself sort of going back. I really liked Yuval Levin's book about. Uh, it's called The Great Debate. It's about this the foundations of conservatism and, and liberalism being in Burke. And Thomas Paine and I continue to wrestle over these ideas, whether or not that's true, to what extent is that true. And I keep wrestling over them even during this this election season. And and I think, you know, I remember things, I certainly remember things from, from other classes, but it's interesting that I keep fighting over these ideas today and they keep sort of enacting their their sort of drama in me. I, I, I'm wondering... Yeah, go ahead. Joke, I, no, it's funny that, that I had no idea our conversation would go to Edmund Burke. But when I was an, an undergraduate trying to find a major, I, I thought that I was going to go into government. And, and at Harvard, one of the majors, it, it's not political science, it's government. And so I took the introductory course with a, a famous, uh, famous political scientist named Carl Friedrich. And he assigned Burke the Reflections on the Revolution in France. And the book was so abstract it didn't mm. seem to have any application i found it tremendously boring and incomprehensible 
And I decided at that point that I would not major in government, but I'd go into something more tangible like history. So when, so when I was working on the French Revolution game, the first time I played it, I didn't assign Burke. And the students who, in the, when I was developing this concept of this game, the conservative students said, the radicals have got this, these terrific arguments from the social contract. We don't have any arguments to make. I can't make any arguments in defense of the church or in defense of the old institutions. And I said, with great trepidation, and I recall this moment, these students are desperate to come up with arguments. I said, well, you might try Edmund Burke's reflections. I swear, Joe, this is what happened. I suggested this. Uh, the weekend went past. They came back, and these students were so excited. They said, that stuff's great. <laughs> So there was this, this revelation for me that this was the text that changed my life and persuaded me to go into history rather than to, to, to a career in government or political science. And, and this book, in the context of the revolution, which is where Burke comes up with these ideas, he's so appalled by Rousseau and the French Revolution, that this was then dynamite for these students. The text came alive for them. And, and so to hear you say, 20 years later, that, that this text came, came alive for you two and now resonates in your mind, you know, five or six years later. That's, you know, that's perfect. But so, too, the social contract, is also, contract also came alive in the game and is resonating in students' heads as well. So so the big idea is this historical moment which helps inform our political discourse today. That's what reacting is about. And, and these games not only the French Revolution where you've got Rousseau and Burke, but you've also, you know, in Ming China, you've got different ideas about conservatism in democratic Athens, different ideas about democracy and oligarchy in, in uh, the trial of Galileo. You're talking about different theories of, uh, of, of motion and of, of physics and also the role of the, of, of church in, in shaping, um, scientific thought i mean just every game when there there are some there are 13 published reacting games and another 60 in development well, well let's talk about that because there's there's one called uh the threshold of democracy which i think you reference as athens in 403 bc but then there's another one in development now called kansas 1999 evolution and creation science so these games span a great deal of historical periods and cultures and ask students to debate very different kinds of questions do you have a, do you have any favorites oh i, I think in some ways that the, the best game is the is the french revelation revolution game if only because the texts are so perfect that, that in a way that you intuited that that rousseau's ideas are so important in the development of modernity and modern uh, uh radical political ideas and 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 Burke really is the foundational idea for modern conservatism mm. and they're two are in just such beautiful uh, tension in this historical moment which itself is really the fate of of the modern world as uh, that that's that's one of my favorites I, I like that there's a game that's set in India at the uh, in 1945 and that's probably mm. I don't, can't think of any collection of leaders that was as extraordinary as the different leaders of India who come together to try to figure out the future of the country as British colonial power is waning. You, one reason that you've got so many 
brilliant leaders in India at that time. Of course, you've got Gandhi and Ali Jinnah. Uh, you've got uh, Ambedkar, the leader of the Untouchables. You've got uh, theorists of Islam and of, uh, of Hinduism and political Hinduism. Uh, you've got Nehru. One reason you've got so many brilliant intellectuals coming together in India is that most of them spent a big part of their lives in British prisons. And the British were very good about providing reading materials and writing materials. So, so the, the, you've got a collection of some 20 Indian leaders who are just wrestling and debating and fighting over what should happen to India when the British leave. And, and this is probably the most formidable aggregation of scholars and writers and thinkers and religious and, 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 political and secular leaders the world has ever seen. So that's a great, that's a good game because all of these ideas, so rich, so contentious, coming together, the fate of a third world democracy, just the greatest democracy, the largest democracy, trying to figure things out and making a mess of it. So that's, an, that's another game that I, that I like uh, a lot, but I, I, I like them all to tell the truth. And I'm, I, one of the things that we have these uh, faculty workshops where, where where people learn the pedagogy by playing many versions of them. Hundreds of scholars will come together and they'll play all sorts of different games over the course of a weekend. Got one coming up at the University of Georgia in January where there are going to be a couple hundred scholars playing a dozen different games. Uh, is It's a chance for me to learn to play a game and it's a way of throwing yourself into lots of new uh, situations with new ideas and learning a hell of a lot very rapidly. So if if you have uh, academics out there in your audience who are who find their classes dull for themselves as well as their students and are looking for some sort of experience that will uh, transform their classroom, democratize it, energize it in every discipline. We've got one game that's set in London in 1594. Some students are members of, um, of Shakespeare's troupe, others of Marlowe's. Mm. And the game is over which play is going to be performed at the Globe Theater and, and a whole series of delicious debates. And the game then culminates with each side performing a scene from the play. So uh, it's uh, uh, every, every discipline is covered in reacting though all the games have gone in the historical component. You know, perhaps the most obvious thing students would gain, I think, from these games is a kind of rhetorical skill and savvy. They, they need to learn how to argue, how to understand the terms of a debate, and how to defend a position they themselves don't necessarily hold. But then by doing so, they must also develop a kind of uh, historical empathy, too. Could, could you talk about that? Well, let me, let's let you talk about that. For, for example, I, I don't know what your politics are. I don't know what they were six years ago, but you certainly understood and internalized in a fairly deep way that conserve, are, are you a conservative Catholic? You know, I, <laughs> without, without giving too much away, I, I, was, I was raised Catholic, and so I was struggling with that question at the time when I was just getting to college. I think I think playing the game forced me to uh, encounter in a very deep way arguments for and against that kind of conservative Catholicism in ways that in ways you know in ways that it would have been easy for me otherwise to evade them but the game I sort of entered the game with with a kind of openness and it forced me to wrestle with questions that I continue to wrestle with as a person 
Well, what, what, what happens, I think, especially more and more, is that people, and students especially, become imprisoned in, in their own sense of self. Mm. They're constantly building and burnishing and polishing their sense of self. Their Facebook wall becomes this, this prison which defines who they are in very precise ways. And the problem is that they then have a hard time understanding other people. And if this election, recent election, mm -hmm. has, has revealed something about us, it's our incapacity to get beyond the prisons of our own self-identity. What reacting does is it forces you, if you're in the India game, and, and to understand Hindu radicalism, which requires that you get into some of the Hindu texts and the ideas behind it. Now, most American students know nothing about Hinduism, much less the idea of, a, of the, the radical Hinduism, which is now a dominant political party in India today. Well, it has its roots in, this, in the game that's set in the 1940s. And students would begin to see how American students who know very little about Hinduism, when assigned those roles, will begin to understand an entirely different world and set of ideas and realize how they could be appealing and compelling, hmm. uh, as, as would be true of the students who are assigned to the, the roles of, of the other side or the secular positions of Nehru or the, the ideology of Gandhi, getting students are taken out of their own selves, their own prisons, and thrust into other ones. And this tells them two things. One is that the other selves are interesting, and it's fun to be someone else and to think in a free and different way. Students find it to be scary to leave the world of their own Facebook self. But once they do, they find it liberating, imaginatively exciting, and fun. And also, in getting outside, they realize they don't have to be just who they are. They can imaginatively be people different from themselves, which then helps them understand people different from themselves. And that is the, the, the empathy that is so missing, so often missing in our political discourse, that we don't think we've got the capacity to get outside of our own worldview. We can't imagine how people think differently from ourselves. And that is a huge and perhaps dangerous cultural failing. Reacting forces you outside of yourself and you find not only that you can do that, but it's fun to be a conservative clergyman, <laughs> conservative church member in France in this time of revolution. It's fun to be a, a a secularist in India as it's, uh, it's wrestling between its Hindu and Islamic poles. It's fun to be uh, an Athenian oligarch who's denouncing the democracy in 403 BCE, the democracy that has lost the 20-year-long -year Peloponnesian War. It, how stupid to let uh, uh, 6,000 people discuss to discuss uh, democratic policy in the middle of a war. Uh, the, all, all of these positions um, are liberal. To take positions so different from yourself, it's a liberating. It expands your mind and it opens it up to new ideas in a way that students didn't think was possible and is a hell of a lot of fun.
and that's that's part of that's the other part of this experience is that that when you went into this different world got out of your own world it had lots of resonances with your own world was a hell of a lot more fun because you're 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 struggling with your peers you're forming relationships you're competing you're you're giving good speeches and you're proud of them and then you give a you you you, you do a sloppy job and you're humiliated by your, your sloppy work. All of the sorts of things that make life exciting, challenging, fun, sometimes scary. You experience that, right? That, that's right. And I'm inclined, you know, it, that was my experience. And I'm, so I'm inclined to agree wholeheartedly, though it does seem uh, incumbent upon me to uh, throw out not, not a counter argument, but, but a potential problem with that that some might see. So I... You know, anyone would admit probably that it's important to learn the terms of the central debates of the past. But to ask students to claim roles as historical characters in those debates seems to be a different kind of of thing with its own set of problems. You know, it might be a bit controversial, especially if, say, students had to address something like slavery in America. So, so are there games that ask students to defend positions that they might find morally repugnant? Uh, what difficulties does that pose in your view and what opportunities emerge, emerge out of it? The, let's take the Constitutional Convention game. There's a wonderful game that, that Pat Kobe, uh, Chair of Political Science at Smith College, has spent years devising, and it's a complicated game that recreates the dynamics of the Constitutional Convention. And, of course, one of the arguments, part of our legacy, is the U.S. Constitution, which included... Uh, which, which which institutionalized in the U.S. Constitution slavery. So you have people in that game speaking on be in in support of the slave planks of the U.S. Constitution. So 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 yes, you have people who are saying things that are hurtful, who will be advancing positions and doing so as persuasively as they can, that are antithetical to what we believe now. I, I heard an interview, a interview just earlier this week with Lin Manuel, who is doing mm. the music for the new Disney uh, film, which is about a Polynesian girl. I think it's called Mona. And this question was put to him, which is, isn't it, isn't it sort of dangerous to be, for you to be, doing a a venue on, on, um, on on Polynesia. In, isn't the way having black actors do do Hamilton in a way isn't that a sort of reverse cultural appropriation? What Lin Manuel said was this: He said, "People need to empathize and do research, and the most important part of that is research. That you've got to get outside of your own world. You've got to imagine yourself as the other." But it's not just an imaginative task of just thinking. You've got to do the hard work of research. And that's what these games do. They, they don't just say, uh, imagine that you're a slave owner. They require that you get into the arguments that were made by the people who are, who are supporting mm -hmm. the, uh, the slave plank. They require that you get into the research of that situation. So it's not just an uh, imagine yourself as a, a a slave owner or a slave. Uh, these games require the, the the research that 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 create a deeper empathy. Um, 
so, so yes, that that to, to be arguing against democracy in ancient Athens. Well, that's that that's 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 hurtful to a lot of people today. To be arguing in favor of Hindu radicalism, that's pretty uh, hurtful to 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 some people today. To uh, every important debate has got resonance on issues today. Uh, the question is, how do we have these debates? If we always keep them as abstractions at arm lengths, they never get very deep. We can just have them out there. You say what you want. I'll say what I want. Um, I'll let you say your thing, but it's not going to enter my brain because I know it's wrong or it's different or it's other. And that's what we have now. People who are living in intellectually gated communities, they, they will affirm the right for you to say what you want to think, say and think, uh, but they're not going to listen. We've seen what happens when everybody is in that sort of a mode, when they're not listening, mm. when there is no no true empathetic engagement. We've got to break that down, and that means imagine intellectual things that are not part of what we're comfortable with. So yeah, there 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 are games that have difficult debates that are that are sometimes uh, painful, but better to have those debates in a way that you understand and engage in an important way rather than you just say whatever. You know, I gotta I gotta just mention as well one of my favorite things about reacting is that it suggests that ideas matter and that debates matter and that you can actually change other people's minds or have your own mind changed by by reasoned and passionate argument. But then of of course I think it can suggest something that you're talking about, which is a bit more nuanced. That it's it's virtuous to compromise at times, but then it's occasionally necessary to be uncompromising, to take a moral stance and stick to it, even if you empathize with the other side. It strikes me that this insight might be especially important this year in light of the recent election and the sort of clear schisms uh, in, 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 in American uh, culture and life. What do you hope students take from these courses and apply to the political and cultural debates that they will inevitably engage in today and tomorrow? What I hope that they will, will gain is a sense that their own self and their own intellectual resources are insufficient. And that's, that's where we've really failed as educators and higher education has failed is we sort of say to students, you need to change in that you need to become educated, but you can stay the way you are. And students often just can't figure that out. Frankly, I can't figure it out either, that that yourself doesn't need to change, but you need to acquire knowledge. But isn't the acquisition of knowledge, if it's important to you, it's not just coding, uh, learning coding and technical stuff. Knowledge to be important should resonate through your soul. And that's what it's just not doing. So what I'm hoping that reacting will do is is a that it will persuade students to think that what is in their head now the things that define themselves now are insufficient and that they need to absorb ideas and materials and context in the human experience that's much wider than what they have now so that's the first thing is to get outside of themselves and let more ideas 
and knowledge into their heads. Second thing is to give them the skills to then make sense of it all. The, the speaking skills and do something with it to make the speaking skills to write in an effective way to, to take tending ideas sort them out come to some decision as to what's right and wrong and then give some some political skills the skills of arguing of forming teams of of leading of 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 having an impact on the world and I don't know what sometimes I, I don't mean to suggest I don't think that the lesson of reacting is compromise or or assertion it's it, hmm. every game and every role's got to have different uh, goals and it's it's more that you've got to get out there figure things out engage with the world and and do what's right as as makes sense to you but that sense to you you've got to be a bigger person than you are now you've got to know more you've got to expand your horizons and and open your minds to other ideas and then 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 figure them out uh, we don't do that well enough in higher education. So, Mark, I, I, I've kept you for a little while, but I do want to ask a few questions about you, if that's all right. Okay. F- first, where did, where did you grow up and uh, go to school? Well, I, I grew up uh, all over the country. My father worked for the J.C. Penney Company. When it was first starting out, he actually knew James Cash Penney. And James Cash Penny began the Penny Company in the Rockies, and so as the Penny Company moved eastward, so did our family. So I lived in probably eight or nine different places, from the Rockies all the way to New York as a growing up. So a very uh, moved around a great deal, went to public schools all over the place, undergraduate school at Harvard, PhD in American history at Columbia. And I've been teaching at at, uh, Barnard and Columbia since 1982. You talked a bit about why you you switched your major uh, to history. At what point did you decide, you know, you you decided to become an historian. At what point did you start to focus on teaching and pedagogy? And and what made you consider Uh, new kind of radical ways to change the way uh, you run a classroom? I can tell you exactly what it was, that uh, I was, I'd, I'd, I'd been teaching for a while. I'd gotten tenure at Columbia. As chair of the the Barnard History Department, I'd done a book on history in the movies, and I'd I'd had my fifteen minutes of, pub, of public fame, <laughs> been on some TV shows and stuff, and and I was feeling that I had I was a success, that I had I had attained my goals, and then I went to my first year seminar, which was a discussion of the classic texts of Rousseau of of Plato's Republic. And here I was, a successful teacher in my own uh, mind. I was teaching students at a highly selective university, so the best students in the nation. And I was teaching the masterpieces of the human imagination, Plato's Republic, Rousseau's Social Contract, all these great texts. And I went, I remember I was walking to class and I dreaded the class that I was bored during the class. My students were bored. And I thought, how can this be? I'm a good teacher. I've got the best students. I'm dealing with the masterpieces of the human imagination in a small classroom setting. How can we all be bored? And I realized that it was it was really the fault of the pedagogy. We were just discussing these books, and they, they didn't understand that, that people 
lived and died over these ideas, that these ideas were transformative in the human experience, but we had pulled them out of the human experience and had sort of struck them into this intellectual stratosphere and it didn't mean anything to anyone. So I, I had a, the, the gleamings of an idea that if we somehow revisited these texts and the points that they really mattered, that they'd come alive. And that was the beginning of the idea. Now, since then, probably seven or 800 faculty members from around the world have flowed into this, this pedagogical initiative and they've transformed this, the glimmerings of an idea into a whole pedagogical system that's really very exciting. So uh, I, I hope that your listeners will Google reacting to the past. They'll find if they're, they're members of, the, of a faculty somewhere, they will uh, find where there's the, the next local reacting workshop and they will take the chance and have the transformative intellectual experience of their careers and then they'll try it with their students and then they'll see that their students who had been modestly engaged at best become like you and I suspect I suspect we didn't discuss this but I suspect that that for that month that your whole mind was uh, consumed with the French Revolution <laughs> you know that's um that's true and it came it, it derived from a couple of things one it's the the pedagogical style made the questions and the debates more fascinating to me because I wanted to win and that that's one that's an added incentive obviously um but at the same time as you say it's because i had to i had to internalize the arguments and thus they they sort of enacted a drama in me um that that at times was kind of funny because uh, you know I, i'd be walking around uh uh campus and i'd be asking these questions to myself um and of course the in, in no way did the did many of the political questions i was asking have anything to do with uh, what was going on in America necessarily at the time. But then, of course, um, once you ask the historical questions, you see uh, the the foundations uh, of, of the politics we inherit. Um, and that's 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 interesting. It, it strikes me as well that and this is this is my last question, Mark. But, you know, as you were describing the moment of epiphany or of recognition you had when you were re realizing, you know, you really just wanted to teach your class in a different manner. You know, so often we hear that the humanities are in crisis, and this is linked to the fact that enrollment is down. Uh, more students are moving to science and technology and business than to history or English. Have you ever thought of reacting as a response to this problem? Well, you bet that's exactly the response, which is that, that uh, uh, there is, a, 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 and if you, uh, reacting faculty say that the reacting, they look forward to class. It's exciting to have a class of energized students who spent their whole, the whole month with their mind on fire about, uh, about this, these topics. Uh, it is a delight to teach these classes. So what I perhaps didn't make clear was that part of the reason that generated this in my mind was that I was bored and I was looking forward ahead to my 20 years as a tenured professor uh, with bored students where I was bored as well. And that seemed bad to me. And so often uh, the reacting faculty say the same thing is that this, this has energized their teaching in a way that they love the classes. They love the experience of teaching engaged students. And it's good for them as faculty members in the sense that they now look forward to, uh, uh, to teaching. There is a posting, there's a, there is a, uh, 
a Facebook faculty lounge for reacting faculty, which has 1300 members. There was a posting yesterday, uh, uh, a faculty member from Southern Illinois University said, we finished our Darwin game and now I've got two week period without the excitement of a reacting class percolating. And I've got nothing to sort of think about and keep me stimulated. And he said, how strange uh, here. I'm a veteran teacher and I'm regretting that I'm not going to have a class for a while. Hmm. Uh, so that's so, so so that's the point. Yeah, this is this is part of what's going to revitalize the humanities, and it's spreading quite rapidly because our our pedagogical modes are not very successful. Now, what happens, and what happens to students like you, is that after you've had a reacting class, and once you begin to see the resonance of these ideas and these issues. You then look at your other classes in a different way. And you also have purchase points. You could take your knowledge of Burke and go into a class on political theory, and you've really got a you, you got a grounding in conservatism and mm. in Rousseau that helps you. So what reacting students what happens to reacting students is that they then go to their other classes and they see their other classes as something of a a respite that is a, a nice balance to the superheated uh, intensity of reacting class so that so what what reacting does is it makes other classes work better too gives students this collective competitive energized super hot intellectual experience where they're also socially rich where they're meeting with other students all the time and then it also then a more reflective class more analytical class then provides a a a balance and one that's that's um, uh, feels pretty good. So, so what I think that is that the humanities and the social sciences are being energized by reacting classes, which then complement the, uh, the the traditional pedagogies in a nice way. Mark, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Uh, thanks. I look forward to doing it again sometime. That was Mark Carnes, professor of history at Barnard College and creator of Reacting to the Past. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Rachel Bills and Kadar Jabbar edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, Visit HowensteinCenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.